Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at viking.com. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Foreign Edition. It's a big week in British politics just concluded as the main labor and uh, conservative parties finish their annual convention season. What have we learned about uh, how Brexit is going to unfold over the next months and, and broadly about the future of British politics over the next couple of years? You are listening to Foreign Edition from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. I am Joseph Sternberg, in again for Mary Kissel, who is uh, still off at her uh, secure, undisclosed location. But I am joined today in our luxury podcasting studio here on the banks of the River Thames in London uh, by a friend of our editorial page, a uh, sage on British politics, uh, Robert Colville, uh, the director of the Center for Policy Studies, one of the, the leading uh, center-right think tanks here in London, also the editor-in-chief of the CapEx uh, website, which is a, a great go-to source for uh, all things British politics and economy. Thanks, Robert, for, for taking the time to come in after what I imagine must have been a rather exhausting uh, party convention season for you. Yeah, no, uh, glad to glad to be here. Well, uh, I'm I'm glad you were able to join us because I think that uh, you know, especially speaking as an American, I think we've probably had more global interest in British politics over the past couple of years than uh, we have seen in quite a long time. And part of it is related to Brexit, and part of it also is just because you have a lot of uh, turmoil within both of the major parties: the Labour on the centre left, the Conservatives on the centre right. Um, you know, as both parties are trying to figure out what is their way forward, how do they respond to whatever signals voters have been trying to send and, you know, a series of uh, you know, surprise general election results is a very surprising Brexit referendum. And, you know, my impression was that uh, this conference season was actually pretty illuminating on that score, that you were starting to see so, the parties coalescing around um, you know, some version of a, a vision that their leaders think might be workable for the, the general public, uh, you know, that might be able to keep voters on side. And you know, I'm curious to get your uh, perception of uh, you know, how that process is playing out. What, uh, what do you think that we've learned from these uh, two annual conventions just concluded? So I think the key takeaway would be that both parties want to be in power. And that may sound obvious, but actually, it's you know, it's 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 it, it defies the the recent conventional wisdom over here. Um, both have spent large portions of the last year or, or more, um, you know, tearing themselves apart in in different ways and over different issues. So, starting with Labour, we learned that John Macdonald and Jeremy Corbyn, despite both being the hardest of the hard left, I mean, they are both you know, they do not believe in any of the ideas that have made. Uh, you know, have have, have in, enriched uh, you know, millions of people, have lifted people out of poverty, have created wealth opportunity. You know, they just they don't believe it. You know, you, you can go back and uh, like read everything they've written over the last thirty years. You know, it's, it gets crystal clear that they are. You know, I mean, if you ask Macdonald who his inspirations are, he says you know only half jokingly. You know, Marx, Lenin, and Trotsky. No, we should but, point out that John Macdonald is the uh, shadow chancellor of the yes. district, so he would be in position to be the, the shadow, next. shadow chancellor and ideologue in chief mm -hmm. of, of the project, but. But 
at their party conference, they were trying to sound like normal, reasonable people. They were talking about... Um, they were actually. I mean, I, I wrote about this uh, for one of our newspapers here. They were actually adopting many of Margaret Thatcher's uh, slogans about um, ownership and control and devolving power to the masses and empowering people. You know, to the, when they talk about, um, you know, taking 10% of companies and giving it to the workers, it's, you know, it's the giving it to the workers bit that sounds really nice, not the taking 10%. And likewise, you know, putting workers on boards. You know, they, they're trying to sound like social democrats rather than uh, hard, rather than hard socialist and their party is kind of going along with it because uh despite their fury over the fact that the labor leadership isn't as pro-brexit isn't as anti-brexit as they'd like it to be despite the anti-semitism stuff they still can't bring you know the the mass of the party is now loyally corbynized and the mps are just kind of still going along with it and can't quite bring themselves to make the break out of tribal loyalty or cowardice or whatever it is um and then turning to the conservative party um there's this sort of recurring phenomenon that you always get told that the Conservative Party conference is going to be the most rebellious in history, that it's going to be a, a seething mass of discontent. And then you get to the conference and, you know, the prime minister stands on stage and everyone goes, oh, yeah, well, well, yeah. Um, you know, there's, an, there's, a sort of, there's a sort of knee-jerk loyalty there. I mean, partly it's because, you know, not that many. So, you know, it's hard. It's really hard to gauge how many activists are actually at, co- at the party conference. Um, there's obviously a heavy kind of professional presence, lobbyists, um, other people involved in, in politics. But, you know, there were not obviously there were lots of people who are upset about Brexit. But the ones who were wandering around with the Chuck Checkers badges, there were not as many of them of them as, as, as you thought they would there would be, if you see what I mean. I mean, the the way people sort of showed their discontent was um, that you know the the hall, the main hall was generally empty for the minister's speeches, and the fringe meetings where we were talking about um, all sorts of ideas were were absolutely packed. I mean, we, there was um, we had we ran twenty events uh, under the Centre for Policy Studies and Capex banner, and I think there was only one where it wasn't standing room only. I mean, it, you know, there was um, which is obviously because we're amazing, but um, <laughs> it's also because, you know it, it, it there was a wider sort of it was noticed more widely than that was the case. But so people are looking for what comes next. After after Brexit, they're looking for the for the agenda, but they are not, and they are you know they are annoyed about checkers. There's, you you will not find a single person, which is the Prime Minister's current Brexit plan. You won't find a single person who says this is an utterly fantastic deal for Britain. But you'll find quite a lot of people who are saying, well, yeah, but you know what? Let's just get on with it. I mean, let's just get something, um, or where you know we are where we are. You know, there's a kind of the the calculation which I think is. And uh, you know, I, c- I could be completely wrong because I, I spent quite a lot of the conference chairing panels and uh, having meetings, and you know, I, I wasn't sort of walking around doing vox pops. But from the people I was speaking to, the mood seems to be that, as the prime minister reflected in her speech, Ger- the Conservative Party has recognised, and rightly in my view, overwhelmingly rightly, that Jeremy Corbyn is a far worse danger to the country, to Britain's future prosperity and security, than pretty much any form of Brexit. Now, yeah, that actually gets into what I thought was one of the most interesting aspects of this entire uh, two-week process, because you know, certainly you know, readers who listeners who aren't familiar with this will, uh, you know, should know that, that typically what happens is that you have a few days' worth of party convention, and all of the ministers and members of the shadow cabinet get up and give their speeches. But then the the keynote of it is always at the end of the event, uh, the party leader delivers a big set piece speech. And uh, so Theresa May spoke, uh, you know, as we're talking here on Thursday, she spoke yesterday, uh, Wednesday afternoon. Uh, there were some moments of the speech that might have been a little cringe-inducing, particularly when she uh, danced onto the stage in a self-deprecating joke about a, 
uh, you know, gaffe that uh, you know, had made the, the news when she was on a visit to Africa a few weeks ago. But yeah, you know, I thought that in general, what the people might have missed if they were focusing on that kind of optics was actually the the substance of the speech and the fact that when they are talking about, um, you know, how the, they believe the conservatives would make better leaders for the country than uh, Corbyn's labor, it isn't just about the you know problems with the specifics of labor's agenda. They were starting to talk much more about this notion of uh, what. Britain should be about? What are the British values that a conservative government would represent? Yeah, I thought that that seems like a very interesting approach. And at least to my eye, a couple steps away, it seems like a bit of a change for the conservatives to actually be engaging with labor on a vision front instead of just the policy specifics or who can deliver a better kind of Brexit deal. I think that's fair. I mean, it's notable, you know, that when Theresa May started as as prime minister, she, you know, set herself in opposition to quite a lot of her party. She she emphasised the things that made her different from the conservative mainstream. Um, her, the the manifesto in the twenty seventeen uh, election, um, the, which was went, went disastrously, um, was you know was as much a aimed at you know neoliberals as socialists. You know, it was full of lots of stuff about how government is good for you and, um, you know, unlike, you know, you, unlike your old school Thatcherites, we think that. And the emphasis this year was very much on, after, you know, after we should draw a veil over last year when um, you know, literally everything that where could go wrong. She, wrong she, um, she had a bit of a coughing fit throughout. So a, a uh, prank, the a prank, the prank, sign behind her started falling apart. And a, prank, yes, and a prankster presented, presented her with a P45 live on stage. Um, but so this year, it was the focus was very much on what sort of unites the Conservatives rather than divides them, leaving open the prospect that Brexit will then proceed to divide them all, all over again. Um, I mean, to an extent, I think that might be because, you know, there isn't, Partly because of the demands of Brexit, the domestic agenda has, in comparison to Labour, you know, the just domestic agenda hasn't been flashed out as much. Um, you know, the, um, the 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 headline policies were about um, you know, there was a building more council houses, freezing fuel duty, which is something the, the government's done sort of year after year after year, which is you know, very welcome for motorists, but it's not terribly terribly exciting. Whereas Labour was standing up and you know, dropping sort of crowd pleasing policies into into every. I mean, the the um, the, the exception was um, the uh, announcement on immigration restrictions after Brexit, which I think is is very significant and probably hasn't been as covered as much as it should. But that's the kind of thing that you can squarely put in front of the voters. We have been talking about the future direction of British politics. Uh, this is Foreign Edition from The Wall Street Journal. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. The Future of Everything podcast from The Wall Street Journal. Another new episode is coming soon as we look at science, technology, and their influence on our lives. The Future of Everything podcast from The Wall Street Journal. The future is closer than you think. From the opinion pages of The Wall Street Journal, this is Foreign Edition. Welcome back to Foreign Edition from The Wall Street Journal editorial page. I'm Joseph Sternberg, in for Mary Kissel, and I'm joined in our studio here in London today by uh, Robert Colville of the Center for Policy Studies, editor-in-chief of CapEx. And we have been talking about British politics after a rather uh, grueling two-week party convention season. 
Uh, you know, in the first half of our podcast today, we were talking a little bit about the big picture, but I think now it's uh, worth digging into some of the policy specifics because, um, you know, what you are seeing is uh, not just a, a growing clarity about the philosophical distinctions that the leaders are setting up between the two parties, but also giving uh, voters some real choices on, on policy outcomes. I think that you have a very far left um approach that, that Corbyn is certainly pursuing with the Labour Party, a lot of talk about nationalization, workers and corporate boards, you know, worker ownership of various companies. Uh, you have Theresa May talking more about, uh, you know, on the one hand, talking more about being business friendly, but also making various promises about taxes and spending. I, I mean, what is your takeaway uh, from all of this about how much of this is actually new? I mean, what, what if anything, do you think that we've learned about some of the policy specifics or the, the you know, ideological direction that the parties want to go on some of these specifics that we might not have known already? Um, in terms of Labour, I don't, I don't think we uh, learned much about their their basic sort of principles. I mean, it's, it's, it's the fleshing out of an agenda that they've already, they've already had, um, you know, and in, in quite a sort of crowd-pleasing fashion. The, um, the one thing they just don't talk about, and, and they, you know, they released a very, a very well-put-together broadcast after their um, their conference sort of showing you know blighted broken Britain and promising how they will repair and rebuild it the, the one thing they never talk about is the cost um, they always I mean they, they, their claims to have fully costed their policies are, are just nonsense um, uh, and they don't you know they, they, don't talk, they don't talk about the impact how they're going to do this you know the fact that if you take 10% of companies you know workers suffer pension funds suffer all all the rest of it um, it's very sort of um, utopian um, in terms of the conservatives um, the end to austerity the end to austerity uh, that the Prime Minister promised was interesting, um, which suggests that, um, you know, there, because, I mean, there is still a £20 billion extra funding for the NHS, uh, the National Health Service, to, to pay for, which they promised. So it, that kind of um, suggests, you know, that the, the dividing lines aren't as philosophically are maybe sharper, but, um, you know, there is not going to be a uh, unless things change significantly, there's not going to be a sort of massively tax-cutting, Thatcherite, Republican-style agenda offered to the voters. The Conservatives are going to be the party of no new taxes as opposed to lowering taxes, unless, you know, as I said, unless uh, things change um, significantly. Uh, it, it does seem to be re really important in terms of how they're casting these uh, debates because uh, yeah, I think I, I would certainly agree with you that certainly uh, you know, we are not looking at Margaret Thatcher's Conservative Party here um, but you are seeing a, a greater recognition, at least from the conservatives, about the role of uh, entrepreneurship and, and businesses and trying to at least fit that into some bigger vision about a um, you know governance. The, the, the phrase uh, Theresa May used was decent, moderate, and patriotic, and you know, suggesting that there is actually something patriotic or part of Britishness about uh, entrepreneurship and supporting the private mm. sector in that way. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I would agree 100% with that. And there was a beautiful line where, so uh, there was a, I actually, I, I can't, I can't say the word on, um, on a, on a civilized podcast like this, but um, Boris Johnson had um, been reported as saying F business um, when it was put to him that business didn't really agree with his Brexit strategy. And Theresa May sort of stood there and said, there is a four letter word ending in K of Anglo-Saxon origin that I would apply, which is back business. And everyone cheered. And it was a, it was a great line. Um, of course, then the, the next question is um, how you do that. I mean, I mean, the government is already uh, commendably committed to cutting corporation tax to the um, lowest uh, to, uh, to the, low, the lowest rate in uh, of the advanced economies, um, or of the, certainly of the, of the major advanced economies. Um, but I, I think um, you know people 
I mean, so one of the things we're doing at our think tank is trying to develop policies which might put the, the flesh on the bones of that uh, of that promise. Okay, well, that mention of uh, Boris brings us to the Brexit question, which mm-hmm. I think is the, the other thing that is of most global interest in a lot of this. And I think that the real takeaway uh, from this uh, conference season is that neither party has managed to solve the fact that uh, or really deal with the fact that both parties are uh, divided internally on Brexit. Now, it's most obvious, I think, in the case of the conservatives, because they're the ones who are in government and are actually going to be responsible for delivering Brexit. So when you have a situation where uh, Theresa May is out there uh, pitching one plan, which is a version of this uh, checkers agreement that that she reached with her her cabinet over the summer. Um, You know, Boris Johnson, the former foreign secretary, is out there giving a fringe speech at the event where he's taking a very different view. And I I think not not so much a fringe speech as a sort of a rally slash invasion. I mean, he he swept into town and before he, you know, packed out the largest hall in the building which wasn't the main stage and then and then swept out again it was it was a very calculated sort of counter uh to the um to the main event and he does tend to pop up whether you want him to or not but the uh i mean you know, what we see is this division that the conservative party has to deal with but the reality is that labor is also very divided on this i mean what you could detect was a real struggle to figure out how to cope with the fact that they have a large urban constituency that was very opposed to Brexit, but they also have a large working class and very far left constituency that also might have been more supportive of Brexit for various reasons. I, I'd actually, I'd separate those out. The um, the the pe- people who, the number of people who oppose Brexit from the far left is is tiny. It's it's basically who support Brexit from the far left rather. It's it's basically John John McDonnell, Jeremy Corbyn, and their kind of old school chums who were there with Tony Benn in the nineteen eighties, and they they view in they view the the EU as a capitalist conspiracy. What, but what there are is a much larger pool of labor, traditional working class labor voters who hate immigration and who see their lives and lifestyles having been disrupted by, you know, competition, national, by, you know, the decline of manufacturing industries, you know, and then all these other people have come, you know, they, that, that's that kind of kind of grievance. And so you had this extraordinary spectacle where, you know, there's been a, a very sort of middle class metropolitan campaign for a people's vote which is basically a second referendum but they can't say second referendum because no one would like it so they say people's vote um and they were pushing putting pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing to get this on the labor party's agenda and you put it through the party because the labor is a, is a democratic party in the sense that you know the leadership is bound by what the floor decides and what happened was this extraordinary late night operation by john mcdonald and those around him to cut them off at the knees and so they ended up getting a promise of a a, peop- a, a vote only on you know deal or no deal, not on leave or remain. And so remain was not. And then John McDonnell went on the radio and went even further. And then Keir Starmer, the Labour shadow secretary, stood up in the main hall and went, "No, no, no, that's not what he meant at all. We, 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 you know, we, we, we're still open to the idea of a vote on 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 leave or remain." And then they said, "No, we're not." And it, you know, it's complete chaos. Um, on the Tory side, similarly, um, you know. Uh, the, the sort of latest version, the, 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 you know, no one thinks that checkers will be the deal. The question is whether it is a, if there is a deal, it is a checkers-based deal, and whether it's a checkers-based deal which goes towards much greater um, integration with the EU, much greater, you know, following all the EU rules and guidelines and limiting our ability to um, set our own regulations, uh, sign our own free trade deals, etc., in the name of frictionless trade and keeping Northern Ireland. Um, uh, you know, keeping the, the settlement in Northern Ireland, or whether it's a settlement that diverges in the direction of a free trade deal where there's much less uh, harmony uh, between the two. And 
No one knows. No one has the faintest idea um, what's going to happen. And we will find out in the next four to six weeks. I mean, it seems like the real problem here and uh, you know, potentially something that has caught people uh, by surprise if they were just looking at this from afar is how difficult it has been for the British political system to d- absorb Brexit and come up with you know some path forward for it. And I've been wondering lately if part of the problem is that both of the major parties are actually internally divided, that this isn't really a fault line um, that falls naturally in that space between you know Labour and the Conservatives so that you could have a governing party trying to do one thing and then an opposition party trying to keep them honest in the way that opposition parties do. I think that because uh, both parties uh, remain split in various ways on this issue. It's hard for anyone to keep anyone else accountable on it. I think that's partly true, but I think, they, the, the, I mean, to a rough approximation, the Tories are now the party of Brexit and Labour are now the party of no Brexit. But the Tories are very, very divided on what that kind of Brexit looks like, um, as is the nation as, as a whole. But I, I think there's also a, an, I mean, we, we have certainly made some calamitous blunders in our negotiating strategy. But I think there's also another aspect of it, which is the European Union. You know, what has become apparent throughout this negotiation is that for the European Union, this is a matter of theology, not of practicality. They view the four freedoms uh, which underpin the EU of um, uh, movements, I think it's fairly movement services, capital, uh, movement services, goods and capital, I think it is. Um, They view them as so important that they are now saying these cannot be breached for any reason and any uk deal must either basically accept all or reject all of course uh the uk points out but you know you let switzerland divide the four freedoms you offered america a frictionless deal on financial services which is far better than what you're offering to the uk we are your closest partner we are like we are the main security guarantor if russia decides to kind of kick up a fuss you know what you know can't we have some you know some negotiation on this but they are there is a sort of they are so reluctant to split this up and give any, I think Britain anything which looks like it might be a better deal than what it would have had internally. And um, certainly, um, President Macron in France appears to now be emerging as the main main obstacle on that uh, on that front. And if there's no movement from the EU, on, I mean, and actually, this is actually a very, one of the things that has shored up the Prime Minister's position is that she is now able to say, after having been humiliated almost in Strasbourg, really kind of slapped in the face when she you know partly, again, due to negotiating uh, faults on the part of the British, but also just, you know, the EU was much much more nastier to Czechos than it had told us it would be. So, you know, the Prime Minister has, has a unifying negotiating position, which is, I've tried to negotiate with you. You've not treated us with the seriousness we deserve as a country. You know, guys, come on. Yeah. And, you know, from that perspective, I think that we are going to be coming up on a period now where we have to make some decisions on both sides of, of, of mm-hmm. this front, because, um, I mean, you, you, neither side can continue kicking this can down the road indefinitely. We have Well, a, they, they, they can. You can you can get to a fudge because um, there's a there is a withdrawal agreement and then there is a there is, there is the kind of the divorce settlement and then there is the custody arrangement, effectively. Um, and the divorce settlement is actually really quite close to being finalized. But they but. That would involve us giving thirty-nine billion pounds to the EU and making all various concessions in exchange for sort of pretty much nothing. So it's, but it's possible that if you know just to keep the show on the road, you sign a, a pretty loose you know statement of future principles and then just can just continue kicking it down the road, which you know. 
increases in uncertainty for business and you know ultimately solves nothing but this is politics and sometimes that's what happens well and it's great for us in the podcasting business because it gives us something to talk about but i think we we are going to have to leave it there for today i'd like to to thank our guest robert colville for for coming in uh, again robert is the director of the center for policy studies here in london editor-in-chief at campex and you can find him on twitter at r colville r-c-o-l-v-i-l-e uh, give him a follow uh, I am Joseph Sternberg, also on Twitter, at Joseph Sternberg, all one word. Uh, you've been listening to Foreign Edition from the Wall Street Journal. Please uh, give us a follow wherever you get your audio content, and we will look forward to chatting with you again next week.